We're looking at 1 John 4, 7 through 12 this morning. Well, every Sunday, every Sunday morning back in the late 1860s, there's a little boy who would get up, get dressed, grab his Bible, and walk to the Illinois Street Church in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, That church would later come to be known uh, as the Moody Church. Uh, And it was actually quite the walk. Uh, The little boy actually passed several other churches on his way to the Illinois Street Church. And eventually there was a a, a man who attended one of the churches that the young boy passed every Sunday. He, He began to take notice when he was on his way to his church. Every Sunday, he noticed the young boy walking intently, with Bible in hand. And I guess curiosity overtook him, and eventually he, the, the man just decided to inquire about the boy's destination. And so he stopped the boy one Sunday morning, and he said to him, Where do you go to church? The boy replied, I go to Mr. Moody's church. Speaking of D.L. Moody, the, the minister there, the church that he walked to. Thinking, you know, this is quite a long walk for such a young boy on a Sunday morning. So the man asked, well, son, that church is a long way from here. Why do you walk so far and, and then pass so many churches along the way? And You know, that's a good question. But the boy also gave a good answer. He said, well, you see, sir, they just have a way of loving a fellow over there. Just have a way of loving a fellow over there. And when I read that story, I took time to consider and wonder and ponder this week whether or not if that little boy lived today in Dayton, Ohio, 2019, if he might wake up every morning, get dressed, grab his Bible, and walk to Veritas Community church for the same reason. You know, it's, it's an important thing to consider since, according to John in this text that we're about to read, this is actually one of the chief signs of authentic Christianity. In fact, we, we could go as far to say, according to John, actually, it's, don't blame me, a, a church that doesn't love one another is, it's unnatural, it's unthinkable. He says that this is the case because the God that Christians worship and know is the one from whom love comes. And the reason that love comes from him, John says, is in fact because he is love. This God we worship is the God who is love. And furthermore, John goes on to say that, that he's proved and shown his love and his, he's, he's proved and shown his extravagant, infinite, incomprehensible love to us in his son, Jesus Christ, in his coming, in his dying. And therefore, John says that Christians love, churches are communities of extravagant and supernatural, even attractive love. And so we consider, if that young boy lived in Dayton, Ohio, 2019, would he walk to Veritas every Sunday morning simply because, well, we just have a way of loving a fellow over here? 
That's a question I want us to consider as we hear 1 John 4, 7 through 12, read and proclaimed here this morning. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy. John writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you bless, would you anoint the reading and proclamation of your word the hearing of your word this morning for the glory of your name and for the good of your people that we might be built up and edified and sanctified as a church who loves one another. I pray these things for your glory and our good and in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. I want to bring to your attention this morning how John says that Christians ought to and do love one another. And he roots this fruit of love in who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. So look with me at who God is, what love is, and where love is. Who God is, what love is, and where love is. First, let's look at who God is. John tells us, That the basis, the reason that Christians ought to and do love one another is because of who our God is. Look at verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John says that, that we are called to and do love one another because the God that we worship is where love comes from. He is the source of love in his creation. Now, similar to, to the way that, sun get, that, that, that the, the sun gives life to the earth and all who live on it from the light and heat emanating from its being, so there is love in God's creation because it emanates from his being. It comes from him. It emanates from his nature, his character, his essence. True love exists in creation because it comes from him. So anyone who claims to know and worship this God also ought to reflect that love to others. But then John goes on to further explain how love comes from God. And it's not just that love is this thing that God created or thought was a good idea or, or merely that he has a kind of loving disposition. But John says in verse 8 that God is love. Now you might remember going all the way back to 1 John 1, 5. Remember what we saw there? John said, he said, God is light. And remember what we talked about, what that means to, to say that, uh, to speak about light in this way is, is, it means to speak about God's holiness and his righteousness and his goodness. 
And to say that God is light is to say that, you know, not only does God have light, not only does he have holiness and righteousness and goodness, no, he is holiness. He is righteousness. He is goodness. God's nature, his being, is identical with the attribute of holiness. He is the perfection of holiness. It's not as if there's some standard out there of holiness or righteousness or goodness that God meets. No, he is the standard for how we ought to define those attributes. He is light. And now John says the same thing about God's love. It's not merely that he has love. God is Love. His, his nature, his essence as the eternal and infinite God is identical with the attribute of love. And I know that this is difficult to comprehend. You, you know, so when we think of God, we tend to think of God as like on a spectrum with us. Like he's just a bigger and better version of us. He's like us, but on cosmic steroids. He, he, he loves like us, just bigger and better. That's how we tend to think of God. But my friends, thinking of God in this way will inevitably lead to an impoverished view of who he is. He's not like us. We may be made in his image and likeness, but you can't look at us and then say, well, God is like that, just bigger. It's not what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. You know, our, he is, he's incomprehensible. Our, our words and minds fail to comprehend and apprehend him. Because when, we, when we think of his love, you know, we think of love in terms of having like affection for someone else, emotions. But my friends, God is not subject to affections and emotions like we are. What exists, what exists as affections in us exists as a perfection in God. He is the perfection of love. He is infinite and unchanging and unwavering. And our, our love wavers. Our love changes. Our love is limited. His love is infinite and unchanging and unwavering. And there's nothing that you can do to diminish or lessen God's love because nothing can ever diminish or lessen God. He is unchanging. He is infinite. Therefore, his love is unchanging and infinite. There's nothing that you can do to make God's love greater because there's nothing that can make God greater. He is infinitely great. Therefore, his love is infinitely great. He's unchanging and infinite and incomprehensible. His love is as well because he is. That's why the, 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 the poet, the hymnist wrote, could we with ink the ocean fill or were the skies of parchment made where every tree on earth a quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. And could no scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky? His love is infinite. His love is incomprehensible. His love is unwavering. It's unchanging because God is infinite and incomprehensible and unwavering and unchanging. And so, of course, you know, we, we would be remiss here if we didn't talk about the doctrine of the Trinity now, the doctrine of the Trinity, there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, one being, one essence. 
eternally existing in three persons who know and love and relate to one another. This is the only way that something like God being love could be true. Take a moment to think about it. A Unitarian God cannot be love. He might learn to love. He might even yearn for love. But only a triune God can be love because love requires an object. St. Augustine, he's an African pastor who lived about 1,500 years ago. He put it this way. He said that love requires that there be a beloved. It requires that for all of eternity, God being love requires that for all of, all of eternity, the Father loved the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loved the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father and the Son, and this glorious triune communion of love that has existed for all of eternity past, self-sufficient in love. If God were not a trinity, but merely a Unitarian divinity, he could be neither love nor God. And so, I know that's big and heady, and, and, but here's one thing that, that this means for you and me. In no way is God's love dependent upon you. His love is, his love is not a response to you. You see, his love is not, ca- it's not caused by you. You understand, like that, that means that there's nothing that you can do to make him love you any less. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you any more because he's already infinite in love. He loves you because he is love and he's completely and totally self-sufficient in his love. His love is not dependent on any outside causes. His love never began, it will never end. And of course, you might wonder, as is appropriate when looking at the book of 1 John, how do I know? How, how, how can I be assured it's true? You say God loves me and that his love is in no way dependent upon me. Okay, how do I know? And that's a good question because love always takes the form of concrete action. True love is always manifested in some way, shape, or form. Love is not abstract. Love in word and deed it's not true love at all, as we've seen in First John already. True love leads to deeds and action. And so when we say that God is love, we can look at what God has done to see that love. God, when he looked upon sinful humanity, humanity that rebels against him and hates him and rejects him in his great love, he took action. Look at verse 9, verses 9 and 10. And here we see what love is. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. First, in in verse 9, notice that John says we see love in Christ's coming. We talk about Christ's coming last week, his incarnation. Last week when we saw that Christ, the Son of God, became like us in every respect except for sin so that we would be rescued from sin. In this we see what love is, John says. We see that love moves toward 
its beloved. Love moves toward its beloved. We see that when love looks on those who, even those who are unlovable, it doesn't turn away in disgust. He didn't keep us at arm's length. No, when Christ looked upon us, those who have rejected him and rebelled against him and hated him, he actually moved toward us. He, he came to us to win us back to himself and save us from eternal death. And listen, you know, it's not that he, did, he didn't do this because there was anything in us that might warrant that kind of love. As Martin Luther once said, he said, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. He didn't find something in us that would cause him to love us. He just loved us, and so he moved toward us because we were his, we are his beloved. That's why he came. He came for us, not because he found anything in us that was pleasing to him, but because of who he is. He loved us and came for us. Not only that, but notice that John says why he came in verse 9. He says, so that we might live through him. You see, love seeks the good of its beloved. Jesus not only moved toward us and came to us, but he came so that we might have life in him. Meaning that we might be rescued from spiritual death. We were spiritually dead, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, spiritually dead. He raises us to spiritual life. And not only spiritual life, spiritual, he, he rescues us from eternal physical death. He came so that we might have spiritual life here now. Not only that, but he came so that we might live eternally with him in resurrection life when he returns. Love seeks the good of its beloved. Christ came because he loves you. He came, he sought your flourishing, your life, your good, even at great cost to himself. Which brings us to verse 10, where John says that we see love not only in Christ's coming, but in his dying. We see love not only that in he came, but what in, in what he did when he came. Verse 10 says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word alert. It's a big word. But remember, we've seen this word already. First John, John likes this word. Propitiation. We, we, the apostles use it several times in the New Testament to speak about the, the, the sacrifice of Christ. Propitiation means a wrath-appeasing sacrifice. John is saying that we see love, not, not in that we loved God. I mean, our love is nothing to write home about, not really. But that he loved us and he sent his son to die on our behalf to appease his just anger and righteous wrath. So that we might be forgiven forever, so that we might be saved, so that God's wrath would be appeased. His righteous, it's, his, his wrath is righteous but it's appeased in Christ. And again, we, we see important characteristics of love in this. One thing we see is that love is free. Love is free. Now John says that we haven't loved God, but he loved us. 
Of course, when John says that we haven't loved God, he's, he's not merely saying that we've been indifferent to God. No, we, we, we've hated God. We've rejected Him. We've rebelled against Him. We've committed cosmic treason against the God and King who created us for His glory. We've utterly rejected Him. And so this great love with which he loved us, it's not only unearned love, it is that, but it's more than that. It's love when we've, it's love when we've earned the opposite. My friends, again, God's love is not a response to you. God's love for you is not dependent upon you. It's free. And it's free because it's given on the basis of who he is, not who we are. Now, you may have experienced something else entirely for your whole life. In your family, you may have experienced a love based on your performance and goodness. But hear me, God's love is free. And your experience with your peers and with your significant others, you may have experienced a love that is based on your looks or your connections or your capabilities. But hear me, God's love is free. Even in the church, God help us. You may have experienced a love based on what you bring to the table or on whether or not you can keep up appearances. But hear me, God's love is free. But now just because God's love is free does not mean it's cheap. You also see here in verse 10 that love is costly. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love moves toward its beloved. It seeks the good of its beloved. It's free and it's costly. This is especially important in this day and age because we live in a time wherein cheap definitions of love abound. Sentimentalist definitions of love abound. Love is seen as merely a feeling. Love is seen as tolerance or blanket approval of a person, their choices. Definitions of love that actually don't require anything of you, by the way. Don't cost you anything. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see a love that is costly. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we behold and find a love that is unimaginably costly. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find a lover who left the praises and position and pleasures of heaven to come and take on our humanity. And not only did he just take on our humanity in his incarnation, but he also took upon himself our sins in his propitiation. He left heaven's praises so that he could come down and receive insults and mocking from us. He left heaven's position in order to come down and be treated as a disgusting criminal by the likes of us. He came down, he left heaven's pleasures in order to come down and be tortured and brutally murdered by the likes of us. And he did it all so that the just and righteous wrath of God that you and I deserve would fall on him and so that we would be brought into the eternal, loving communion of the triune God. 
But you see, this is the king dying for traitors. This, this is the potter dying for his clay, the creator dying for his rebellious creation. This is the lover offering himself for those who hated him. In this we see love. Love moves toward its beloved. It seeks the good of its beloved. It's free. It's costly. This is the love that we see in Christ Jesus and his coming and his dying. Because we've seen such love, John says, we also ought to love one another. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. Which brings us lastly to where love is. This love is reflected and found within the church. This love is today made visible in the church. This is John's entire point of the passage this morning. Because of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, we love one another. Since love comes from him, and since he is love, everyone who knows him and worships him and has been born of him manifests his love to those around them. And in fact, John says in verse 12, he says that this is actually the goal of the gospel. In verse 12, he says that that if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What does that mean? Does does that mean that that as Christians, we're supposed to love without sinning and messing up? That we're supposed to be inerrant, infallible manifestations of God's love? It does not mean that. It cannot mean that. We aren't infallible manifestations of God's love, nor can we be on this side of glory. If we were, then we wouldn't need Jesus as our advocate and propitiation. That's not what John is talking about. The idea of perfection in John's culture and a Hebraic worldview would mean something more like a completion of a goal. He's saying that when those in the believing community love one another, God's goal in the history of redemption is coming to fruition. God's goal in eternity past was to have a people for himself. A people who make his kingdom visible. And the defining characteristic of that people, of that kingdom, would be love because they would be a people who reflect and are filled with the love of the triune God. And one of the more fascinating books that C.S. Lewis wrote is a, a book called The Screwtape Letters. And in the book, there's this older demon, Screwtape. It's fiction, obviously. He's an older demon, screw tape. He's mentoring this younger demon in, in, in the ways of temptation and deception and the like. And, and at one point, the older demon writes to his nephew. He says these words. He says, one, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. 
We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. You see, that's the final goal. That's the goal of God's plan of redemption. He really wants to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose lives on miniature scale reflect and manifest his love. That's why churches exist. That's why we exist. To be representations, manifestations, embassies of the kingdom of God, of which love is the defining characteristic. So we come back to our question. Do we just have a way of loving a fellow here? That little boy, if he lived in Dayton, Ohio, 2019, would he make his way to Veritas every Sunday morning, Bible in hand, and would his reason for doing so just be that we have a way of loving a fellow here? If he visited on a Sunday morning or if he visited your city group, would he walk away? Would he walk away saying, wow, they're really passionate and precise about doctrine? I mean, we we looked at 1 John 4, 1 through 6 last week. It's good to be passionate and precise about good doctrine. But my friends, if we understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if we have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, we are nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. If he came, would he say, wow, those folks are really passionate about reaching the city for Jesus. They really want folks to hear about Jesus and become his disciples. Again, that's a good thing. We ought to want that. It's not bad to want that. It's good to want that. But you know, there's still a way that we could go about doing that that looks remarkably a lot like the Tower of Babylon, if we have not love. The primary question I want us to consider this morning is, are we a church that loves? I think so. I think so. I've experienced this in this church family. I'm willing to bet that you have as well if you've been around for any amount of time. Of course, we're not a perfect manifestation of God's love, but we are a community that reflects God's love and manifests God's love because his life is within us and we are continuing to grow in doing so. I believe that. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. And so as we're getting ready to conclude, I'd like to leave you with just a few descriptions of what it would look like for us to love within the context of a local church. What does it look like? What does love look like in the context of local church? We could say a lot of things, but we'll just leave it to three. First, we speak the truth in love. Remember what love is. According to the work of Jesus Christ, love moves toward its beloved. It seeks the good of its beloved. And sometimes that means having hard conversations. Cheap sentimental definitions of love, love defined as tolerance or or blanket approval fall woefully short of the kind of gospel love that we're called to in Christ. Sometimes love means gently confronting someone who's walking in persistent sin. And I mention this because we often define love as the opposite. 
gospel informs how we do this, right? Think about how the gospel, gospel love approaches another in their sin. Love, love doesn't approve the worst in you when it rears its ugly head, but nor does it reject you for not measuring up. Instead of rejecting, love moves toward a person. Instead of approving of sin, love seeks the good of the person loved. True love won't tolerate or approve of a beloved engaging in self-destructive or others' destructive behavior. That's not loving. That's indifference at best and hatred at worst. Therefore, when a beloved brother or sister is engaging in unrepentant, destructive attitudes and behavior, we speak the truth and love. We move toward, we seek their good above our own comfort and convenience. Furthermore, we use our resources to help one another. And I won't belabor this point. We've already seen it earlier in John's letter. But it's also worth repeating and reminding because it's an ever-present need for us as a church family. We, we live in a time and place where comfort, possessions, financial security are strongholds and idols. And wherein people are more and more distancing themselves from meaningful relationships and community. And so this is an area that we are called to be a counterculture to the ways of the world. We, we are people who use our resources to serve and help one another, even to the point where it hurts sometimes. And the reason we do so is because we've been so wondrously loved and served by Christ Jesus. He is our motivation and our example and our source for such love. And so I ask Where would you be if Christ used his resources in the same way you use yours? Look at the way you use your resources, your time, your money, your talent, your possessions. What if Christ used his resources in the same way? Would you still be under the wrath of God? Look at Christ. Don't look at your neighbor to compare. Look at Christ. His love was costly, wasn't it? Does your professed love cost you anything? If not, you might be fooling yourself. And lastly, we love unselectively. Did I make that word up? Maybe. I don't know. You get the point. Love is not Christian love if it's selective. In the sense that you love those that you find more lovable in the church, but that brother or sister who smells a little weird or is socially awkward or is, a different, is of a different race or ethnicity or of a different age bracket or, is, or is whatever. Well, that's just not my kind of person. Here's the thing. You can do that without even realizing it. You can surround yourself and selectively love people within your church without trying to. You just sort of build your own little clicky group of friends in the church. Well, that's just too bad for everyone else. So think about it. Is everyone that you're in spiritual friendship with, do they look like you? Do they like the same things as you? Do they smell like you? Are they about your age? Friends, it doesn't take the supernatural love of Christ within you to love such people. You know, Gentiles love people that are like them, Jesus tells us. 
A Christian, though, is, is saved into a believing community of people that, well, they might not look like you. You might not naturally. You know, Michael Horton once said, he said, a church is not a group of friends you've picked for yourself. It's a group of brothers and sisters that God has picked for you. And that's true. That's especially true, maybe, of those that you wouldn't naturally love, the ones you might find hard to love sometimes. But my friends, we don't love others based on their loveliness because we weren't loved based on our loveliness. We were loved when we were unlovable. We were loved by God when we didn't love him. We were loved by God when we rejected him and rebelled against him and hated him. And he shows his great love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ moved toward us. And he sought our good and he freely loved us. And he did so at great cost to himself. He simply loved us because of who he is. He loved us in his coming. He loved us in his dying. Therefore, brothers and sisters of Veritas Community Church, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Triune God, you are love. And you have proved, you have shown, you have revealed, you have manifested that love in the coming and in the dying of Christ Jesus. Lord, forgive us for not properly reflecting and manifesting that love amend what we are, direct what we will be, that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we might love our neighbors as ourselves, that we might love one another. And we pray that Dayton would know that we're your disciples by the way that we love one another. We pray that we would be a representation, an embassy of your love. We pray these things knowing that you love to answer such prayers. We're asking for your will to be done. That's your will. That's your promise. That's your plan. And so we're asking that you would manifest your will, your promise, your plan in this church. And so we ask with confidence. In the name of Jesus, amen.